Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to True Fiction. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs, and across from me is my co-pilot for this journey, Norbert Yates. How's it going tonight, Norbert? Going great, Pat. Let's do it. All right, let's do this thing. Once again, we've got a great guest tonight. She produces and casts film, TV, and commercials as Chief Operations Officer of 25.8 Studios Incorporated, which has worked and provided many companies from local to regional to Super Bowl ads, even the Paralympic Games in South Korea. She and her company have won 13 American Advertising Awards, along with Professionals' Choice and People's Choice Awards. True Fiction welcomes Stacy Toy. Hey, Stacy, how's it going tonight? Good, how are you? We're doing really well. I'm glad you could make it on the show tonight. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Norbert. Hello. <laughs> so you have an amazing resume. I mean, I was reading through it and it's just like, holy crap, what hasn't this woman done? Studied at Harris Manchester College at Oxford University. I see that you earned a master's in journalism, 11 years in the broadcasting industry, and TV news director. Your list goes on and on and on. Was journalism and broadcasting your dream from early on? Yes, it was. Um, I grew up like on a farm, so watching TV and the news was kind of what you did when you had dinner or in the morning getting ready for school. Um, so in the local news station that's here um, in the Poconos area, they have the highest rated local newscasts in the country because they covered like 21 counties um, in this area. They are just massive. Um, so I always wanted to work there. And my goal was to work there before I was 40 and I wanted to be a reporter. And I went to school and I was on the air on a couple different stations on radio, on TV, um, hosting. I was doing entertainment stuff on entertainment shows as like a anchor and a host. Um, and then I started interning. And when I interned, I realized that journalism is like eight hours in a courtroom watching, you know, murder trials, which is fine. I, I totally knew what I was getting into. Um, it was two weeks into my freshman year of college. I had just left home um, and 9-11 happened and I was conveniently located uh, six miles from Three Mile Island. So I have a potassium iodide pill in one of my scrapbooks because when I'm getting one of those again, right? The whole uh, tragedy and stuff, it was like adrenaline rush for me. Um, I wanted, I knew at that point in time that I really wanted to be into news because it was, it was like kind of almost, I guess, what people would feel when they go skydiving because I was literally almost close to death. I'm freaking out for my life, but at the same time, it's, it's exciting. So when I started interning, I did an internship for about five months or so, and I was re being a reporter, um, not actually on the, the news station that I was at, but just going out with them to experience how it is, how they work, you know. And then after that, I started to see the behind the scenes how, because I would sit in the control room when I wasn't out. And I'm like, this is so fun. This is so fun. And I knew that the way to get into working at that particular station, since it was such a high rated um, news station, was to start even in camera working, you know, part time. So I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. So it wasn't very long after my internship and I got hired there part-time. Uh, I started off in camera and then I said, you know, screw being on the air for two minutes after all that. I want to do the stuff like direct and not breathe for an entire block until I get to a commercial. 
of course I took the, you know, I, I did the, the right thing and took the absolute biggest pay cut, you know, and from <laughs> on air to behind the scenes. Um, but I, I just like to love what I do and it just was so exciting. And then I ended up doing things like going to the Olympic games, that kind of stuff, uh, wasn't from my new station. I was doing things on my own outside of that, like freelancing because I always wanted to grow and always wanted to learn. Um, and so then when I was over at the Olympic games, I was doing some stuff for some major networks over in London and they were switching from HD and the automation systems. So I started to kind of get a sneak peek of this new automation systems. Um, two years after that, in 2014, it, they came to the States and the director of engineering from corporate who invented this program that was being used across the country, uh, they picked me and two other people to perfect the, like troubleshoot, perfect, do the whole thing um, for all of the stations across the United States. Awesome. So I just perfected my replacement. Like, so forums <laughs> went from 12 people down to two and there's no changing it. And that's just how life goes. So that's okay. Um, I just wanted to work there before I was 40. And I ended up um, just under 11 years directing America's highest rated local newscast in the country, going out and still shooting like uh, the Good Morning Pennsylvania's is like a, uh, you know, small little snippet. Sure. Thing. Yeah. So I got to go out into the community and still uh, experience people and, and, and edit and talk to people and interview them. But it was always happy things. Not that that mattered, but I was much better, like really crazy situations. Extreme in, things. Yeah. In the director's chair and telling everybody what to do calmly because that's where I shine. That It's just, it's nuts, but it was so fun. I loved it. I miss it, but I know I'll never get it back again because it's not really out there. Oh yeah. Things so change. So Stacy, I, I would just want to backtrack just a little bit because so you're you're in Pennsylvania. How do you get to Oxford? Is this part of your journalism part? Um, my I'm actually my grandmother and my family, they're all from over in England and Wales and Ireland. So uh, I had never been there before, but I had heard my grandmother talk about it. Growing up poor, your parents can't just hand you money to go and do things. So my parents in encouraged me to always find other ways. And that meant scholarships. That meant getting involved in organizations and having all these people pay for opportunities. Schooling was important to me because I wanted to do things and go places. And, and I knew that that was the only way of doing things. So I guess that was where the start of my producing career started, which I had no idea, but it's just navigating different ways to find and get to where you want to go. But Oxford was the number one school in the world. Like I wanted to try for it. Um, I was going to Elizabethtown College um, and they did have a study abroad program, but then I went further and also applied for some other programs and I ended up getting into those on my own. I got my degrees and then I also went back and I got two different accreditations from the board in writing, uh, in like actual writing, not like, like it's in the, the, the subject of writing, if that makes sense. They just invited me and I got into the Oxford Entrepreneur Society over there, which is Europe's largest entrepreneur society. But my grandmother gave me, I remember I needed like $600 down and my grandmother gave me the $600 as long as I got to go back to Wales and to England. And, and ultimately it was just like, that's my homeland. So I, one of the things I think, I have a certain picture in my mind of Oxford, you know, I, I think of kind of like stuffy, stuffy <laughs> and, and huge libraries and Wigs. huge, huge roofs, you know, and, and libraries and that sort of thing. But one of the things I was thinking about as, as we're just kind of talking here. Well, the one thing that I think I learned from going to school or university was I learned how to solve problems. I don't think 
outside of that, I'm not sure that it was a huge boon for me, but was there one thing that you take away from Oxford that you go, okay, I take this, this helped me in what I'm doing now? Um, well, I, ultimately Oxford launched me into a part of my life and my life story that I didn't even know was going to happen until it all kind of came together. Uh, but essentially I got into Oxford on drugs. Um, I was taking 70 to hundred Vicodin a day for nice. years. Uh, and I was on the Dean's list. It was my thing. I, you know, and, and there was one, the week of my finals after being there for about a year. I ran out of pills for the first time. Now this was, I'll be clean 17 years from that, uh, the end of this year. So congratulations. Pre-opioid epidemic. Okay. I had, speaking of stuffy and all that, taking your tests, I was getting sick and going through withdrawals, right? Oh, wow. So puking and shitting at the same time. And the walls are paper thin because it's like old. And so everybody hears you. What's going on? <laughs> oh, it's just one of those. That's the only thing I hated about it. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful um, because Hitler wanted it for World War II because it has like all the walls and, and encompasses everything. At the time, it was made up. Oxford was made up of 40 colleges. I think there's 38 now. Um, I didn't know it, like I said at the time. Um, but two years ago in March, uh, I was honored at Parliament for being uh, an Oxford University, um, like just for doing all the stuff that I do. And they were proud of it from my college there. And I didn't know it, but they were explaining how the college was was originally started for people that had hard times and and dealt with uh, life experiences that wouldn't have let them otherwise go to Oxford because they would have needed more money or stature or any of that kind of stuff. So Oxford was originally started for misfits like me. And I didn't realize it until I was kind of getting honored at at, <laughs> at Parliament. So I'm okay with that, but it was really, it truly was like the coolest, like full circle moment. So just imagine, imagine that, man. So, <laughs> like so let me ask you, Stacy. do you feel like there was pressure to do the drugs? Do you feel like Stacy's just a party girl and she just wants to do the drugs? Nobody or? knew. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. I mean, I, of course, when I would do the uh, cocaine and all that stuff as things got, you know, crazier, but nobody knew because I didn't need to tell anybody at all. It just made me better. And it gave me, it made me who I am, right? Like the person I am right now, because I had to retrain myself over the years yeah. to be that person that I wanted to. But I was shy growing up, and this gave me confidence. And in high school, my senior year, I was the uh, state reporter for Future Business Leaders of America, and I was going to California and speaking in front of two hundred fifty thousand people at March of Dimes and on drugs. Wow. <laughs> Granted, I wasn't buying them from anybody; I was getting them from my doctors because I had ovarian cysts and I was a dancer like ballet and a cheerleader from my back and all it, it was easy to get tons of pills back then because it wasn't an issue uh and then when it comes to asking for help it's an issue when you're not breaking any rules because it's not like heroin or underage drinking it's your own prescription so people didn't know what to do with me essentially um it was it was interesting <laughs> You never had like doctors go, Stacy. We probably you you need to back off on this. Where I'm getting really I was concerned. going to the number one school in the world and getting on the dean's list. Who was going to question that? Yeah, Look, yeah, I mean, yeah. like seriously, I was up in NEPA. Who else was doing all that? I like it's a long, hard fall from grace when when it happens. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And if I had to live my life over, I'd do the same thing because I had to lose it all after I had 
because you, you get that ego. You get the, oh, look at me. And I, and you, no, you have to lose it all. One of the things I was looking at is your documentary, Open Arms, Haiti. And I think, and wow, what a way to pay back. Because what did you, like the first couple hours that was released, it was, uh, it, it made $2 million. So yeah. can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? The documentary? Sure, um, So the documentary was the second thing that I did in the film industry. I was, I know Robert May, who is the Academy Award winning producer director from, um, he won for Errol Morris's Fog of War. And he did the Kids for Cash documentary, and he's done a bunch wow. of feature films, and he's he's very well respected. So he's from this area, and he's actually a distant relative of mine. Oh. And I had always kind of confided in him since I started in the industry, which was only the year prior I left uh, TV and news. I always just like to talk about stuff. I like to earn my way. Like, I'm not asking for stuff, but he knew that I knew you know, kind of what I was talking about a little bit, but I was willing to be molded and to learn. But more importantly, I've already been to Haiti three times prior to that. So that was like my fourth trip. And him and the other three crew members had never been there before. So I was the only female, um, but I wasn't afraid to go down there because I had been down there. But more importantly, I'd always wanted to go down there and do something um, that was good for kids, um, you know, had a great message, a good program, something that was just going to make a difference. And my husband and I had always talked about that because he had brought me to Haiti the first three times on vacation. We went to, uh, there's like an island from Royal Caribbean called Labadee. And then we go into like Port-au-Prince and all that stuff when we were there. But every time we were there, we would talk about wanting to go do good things. And so the opportunity came. And at that point in time, my husband had passed away uh, just a few years prior to that. So I jumped at the chance because it was everything that I wanted. And so it was the first time I went back without my husband, but it was to do what, you know, we would had talked about. So uh, being down there was everything that I'd hoped it would be because they have nothing, but they have everything. It was orphans uh, that had lost their parents, like in the earthquake. And they were trying to build the uh, school, homes, uh, self-sustaining agriculture. They had like a 14-acre facility that was just ready to be used. So they called us down to try to raise some awareness and raise some funds. And it's incredible to me to see that they got everything that they asked for in less than a year after we were there to shoot the documentary. And ultimately, I love that the most, to be able to give people a voice that wouldn't have otherwise have been heard. Do you want to talk about your husband? Because I know that was a rough little thing. Um, is it now? Was that the end for you with with the drugs or? No, um, I I was done with them in two thousand and three, and so my husband was in the in the navy. Uh, and when he decided after his five years, he decided to come home, and he trying to get a job, trying to you know just have some sort of life because he was a jet mechanic and he would go around with the Blue Angels. He was on aircraft carriers over like the Middle East, Bahrain, and wherever. Um, and then to come home and it's like, nobody will hire you. He dealt with a lot of PTSD. He had a lot of stuff going on, but it wasn't bad in the beginning when he first got home. It just progressed over time because he was not winning anymore. He went from a hero to nobody wanting, you know, to hire him and all that stuff. So ultimately, uh, he was seeing, you know, doctors and and taking treatment for, they diagnosed him as bipolar, which eventually he just, he never did heroin, but 
he was trying to get some peace, I guess, because of anxiety, not sleeping with with the depression. Um, And he was over a friend's house and someone that we I know and is used to be friends with him and went to school with us, uh, shot him up with heroin. And he ended up dying in his sleep on Veterans Day uh, in 2011. 28, he was 28 and our kids were six and four at the time. It, it was, it was my, it was a crazy time. But I also had gone through so much uh, leading up to that just with my recovery my, and, and trying to build everything back up that I wanted to honor my husband. And, and, you know, I do have a strong faith. And I was like, this is, this is the time for it to shine. Um, and I wanted to be strong for my kids. It was like the first time that I loved, you know, people more than myself because I'd always just been so selfish my whole life. Um, after that happened, I ended up reaching out to the person who shot my husband up with heroin and and I asked to meet up with him. And so he agreed. I picked him up at a halfway house a couple months after that. And I took him out to lunch and I said, listen, like I've been where you are, because nobody wanted to help me. Like everyone, I was all the way up here. It's so great. Oh, it's awesome. And when you fall, where is everyone? Oh, you're gonna fail. That oh, you're a drug addict. You're the. I was like, I, I was trying to. I tried to get a suicide. Didn't happen. Like I t- take more pills. I still wake up the next morning, and I'm like, ah, what in the heck? Like this is terrible. But I understand it now. Um, obviously, there's you know. Uh, things to work out for a reason, if you will. Like, obviously I miss my husband a lot, but I told the person who shot him up, I said, I want to make something good come from something bad. Like, I know what you feel like. I couldn't help my husband, but you know, if you become husband to your wife and father to your two sons that my husband can no longer be, I'll help you and I forgive you. And so for the next eight to nine months while he was in the halfway house, uh, you know, I, I would talk to him on the weekends or whenever he had anxiety, I'd help, I'd pick him up, uh, and take him to work if it was really cold and snowing so he didn't have to walk. I made sure that he had minutes on his phone to be able to talk to his kids and just help guide him and, and talk to him because nobody else was there. Um, I remember he said to me, you know, you're the one person who's supposed to hate me and you're the only person willing to help me. And I'm like, yeah, because I know what it feels like. Um, everybody was against me. Oh, throw him in prison. I'm like, that's his second home already. His father was like in the Hells Angels and he was tossed around his whole life. I'm not, sending him back there is not doing anything because it's not helping. So I was fully prepared to take him to lunch that day and have him tell me to go fuck myself. And I was good. I was okay with that too. But he didn't. In fact, it was something more than he could grasp is exactly what he said to me because He's like, I, you know, I essentially, because of me, you know, your husband is dead and now you want to be a friend. He's like, that's, He's like, I made him feel because everybody's always going against him and trying to put him in prison or making him the bad guy. He's used to that. And that's that's all he knew. But in that moment, it was something more than he could grasp. After all of that, um, it's been nine years at the end of this year since he's gone. And I've not only proven that the only thing more powerful than addiction and depression is love and forgiveness, but I proved that it sustains itself. I mean, I haven't seen him in person for probably two years or so now. He does message me and, you know, stays in touch with me, but he also messages me every once in a while just to thank me. To me, that would be very, very almost impossible so uh, I would love. I hope I have the strength. If anything, if everything happens like that for me, I hope I have the strength to, to do what you did. I think that's uh, admirable. Well, you will, because it's possible now. Because 
see that as possible. Yeah, there you go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when you, I, I, one of the things that I'm kind of uh, fatigued by looking your 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 all the things you're doing. I mean, it's just like you're you're involved with a lot of things, and I was just thinking, what is the thing that you do that you enjoy the most? Because well, I love being with my kids, obviously. Uh, they're going to be 16 and 14 this, the end of the year. So they're freaking awesome. Like, they're, I'm going to be working for them one day, I'm sure, because they're just so smart and witty and fun, and we're the three amigos. Uh, and I get to bring them on set. I've had them star in some uh, commercials. They've helped me behind the scenes on some films, and they've gotten paid, and they have credits. And oh, nice. So exciting because my dad told me when we worked when I was growing up on the farm he said nobody's going to come here and look for you and try to find you and knock on our door so you got to go out and get it so half of my very first film that's on Amazon and Hulu or uh, Voodoo and all these like 32 platforms uh, 100 acres of hell half of it was filmed on my property here in the Poconos because I, I knew I was going to have to go out and get it but when I came back I brought the entire production team and the film and we filmed it here so so cool that is so cool because and that is definitely something that's on my uh my notes here that i wanted to talk to you about i see that it's streaming now on amazon itunes voodoo on demand about anywhere around the world and it also made uh, the top 10 brit flicks in november hit uh number two on the top five list of youtube's top picks in december so this thing is 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 getting some this is getting recognized i think it's great oh, yeah two weeks ago it played in Times square on the largest screen in the country so awesome oh did you were you there no, I oh, wasn't. Oh, that would have been so cool. Pictures. With COVID and everything, like, yeah. I could drive to New York, but, I mean, I did, that film was, like, five years ago, and it was, like, a thousand miles of bad road to make it. It was <laughs> a lot of experience, and I love my cast and crew. I'm proud of it, but holy crap, was I glad for it to be over. I've seen, I was, I helped sync the audio and video, and it took, like, seven weeks, seven days a week, hours. I don't want to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> love it it's great but i saw it enough i just need a little break <laughs> i was really thrilled i love ellen deets and i've seen that she's in the movie she's amazing yeah, a very good friend yeah she was in the exorcist and yes. uh i told her you terrorized me as a kid so when i because i go out to the grammy awards every year and this january i was out there and i went to her house and i said i'm coming in and i'm terrorizing you since you scared the shit out of me when i was a kid <laughs> Yeah, I love that because nobody realizes that it was her. So it's you know it's it's awesome. So what what drew you to that project? I was hired on it right after I I quit my full time comfortable job as sole financial provider of the kids and I as a widow at thirty thirty one I guess I I forget now thirty one I guess uh, and so I got hired to be public relations there. Uh, after the automation systems happened, I decided, I started with the plan in a few months, like ahead of when I gave my notice, I was going to take a leap of faith and give myself a specific amount of time and go and see if I could do something else. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I, I was put some things in, in play and I just kind of jumped and it was crazy looking back <laughs> on it i was fucking nuts like it's insane because i had two kids then too who were looking at me to provide um and my husband didn't die in the war and his life insurance policy that's a different story but i never saw a dime of it let's oh, just man. say and working at the news station at, with a master's degree from oxford for almost 11 years it was twenty-seven thousand dollars a year um oh, so it's ridiculous. not like i was it's not like i was making a ton of stuff anyway so 
when I di- when you dive into the deep end, you can't stop when it gets uncomfortable, you know? So I was also, I don't care. Like I was a waitress, I'll waitress again. I'll work at fast food places. I don't care. I wanted to give myself one shot to see what else I could do. And uh, getting hired to do public relations and having a natural curiosity. I like to learn how things work. I ask questions. Uh, after a week on set, uh, they asked me to be the production manager in charge of the entire set. Wow. Uh, I'm like, you guys know that you guys have been in the industry for like 24, 25 years. Uh, this is my first week. Like I've been in TV news, but uh, but they were like, we, we believe in you and we really think that you could do this. And so I said, okay, what happens? I could fail, but then I could just say, hey, you were supposed to teach me, you know? <laughs> uh, but it was, it's, it was definitely a learning experience, but my business partner, I, he wasn't my business partner at the time. Uh, his name is Mark Denenbaum, the one from 25.8 Studios. He, I reached out to him just because he had been in Los Angeles after he went to film school. He worked um, in production on the first two seasons of Sons of Anarchy, 24, House, Scrubs, Elementary. Wow. I mean, you name yeah. it. For out in L.A., he was great and he was on it. So I reached out to him and said, I don't know what I'm doing. And he's like, you're a producer, Stacy." And I'm like, no, I'm not. Because TV news producing and film producing is different. Uh, it's it's totally different. In TV news, you're writing like a half an hour TV news show and putting things together, which is essentially copy and paste for the most part because they're facts and you can't change facts. And they have times and it just works. In film, you're dealing with permits. You're you're essentially the mom. You're making sure people are eating. They get travel, the union stuff, the the budgets, the contracts, the uh, insurance, uh, on set, off set. It's just it's everything. And I had no idea that that's what I like to do until my business partner, who's he's my business partner now, he said, "Let me hire you on this Toyota commercial while you're filming with Hundred Acres of Hell, so I can kind of show you because we were on set for a day." So great. Okay, show me. And so that's where it all began. And then we just snowballed into, wow, this is this is really working well. And with my connections and his knowledge and his technology, because uh, because he would edit and he shoots and we have the gear. And so we now have, uh, well, he started this facility uh, in Scranton. We have like 14,000 square feet now. It's our production studios. We have a top of the line recording studio in there. We've got the editing booths, the photography studio, the largest psych wall from New York to Philly. Uh, but outside of that now, because people said that we couldn't succeed here. Uh, Mark and I, he went out to LA. I was doing Europe, all that. I've, I've filmed in 47 countries so far. So I was out I left. I did everything. He left to do everything, but we both wanted to come back and do something because they told us we couldn't. Uh, Mark started it 10 years ago. Uh, the 10-year anniversary of 25-8 was actually like two days ago. Um, and so I've only joined on five years now, um, but it's we now have affiliate offices in Los Angeles, Atlanta, Orlando, and London, as well as our production studios. And so we built it. They said we couldn't do it. We'd have to leave. Well, I had kids here and Mark has a family here and I wanted to stay here. I wanted to make it happen. So we built everything else all around it and we put the hub right here and tell us what else we can't do. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about when you were saying all this uh, about producing, for those who are, com- you know, that don't know much about it, they see credits on a movie and they see produced by, and then, general, you know, like you have executive producer, you know, Stan Lee, and, you know, he's like 
he was at the uh, in the movie he was like he was 95 so i'm thinking yeah he's probably not done much on this film but like there's a fleet of of producers what are their job functions are are they split up in a in a production like you know somebody handles contracts or how does that typically work it depends well and bigger on like the bigger studios yes there's a job for every single little thing doing some executive producer work because i'm helping to bring in the money the finances um i've also gotten credits just because i have a lot of connections make a lot of phone calls and can connect and make a deal to have stars come on to do things um I hang out with investors all the time and go to conventions and, and have my network and I utilize that. And there's a price for that. I mean, I, I've gone and done a whole hell of a lot and I, you know, people come up to me and it's like, okay, I'm here. Let's network. What can you have for me? It's like, that's not how it works. Um, so I, I've, I'm valuable because I'm the connector. I'm the catalyst on a lot of different stuff and I know how things work, but I'm not on every set that I've uh, upcoming that I'll be producing because I'm starting to do different things and learn how it works. But the ones that I've been on the set the whole time, you're calling. I, I remember calling because we needed more uh, wood and stuff. So I'm calling my cousins who own uh, a sawmill and they were just donated a whole bunch of uh, semi truck full pal- uh, pallets so that we could come down. But otherwise, we weren't going to get the shot that night. And who's going to pay? Because it was a, a union uh, film, 100 Acres of Hell. I've had to do basically almost everything, but that's kind of what I do anyways. It's like nobody takes the lead. And when things have to get done, you need to know that they're going to get done right. And especially if I'm in charge at that point in time, I'm like, we can't screw around with insurance and all this stuff because it's union too. So we got to follow the union rules and deal with SAG. And there was an awful lot of things that were thrown at me, but that's again, where I shine the, the most. And I don't care. I'll ask every stupid question in the book. That's how I got smart. I have a way of, of you know, figuring things out. I was lucky enough to talk to Andrew Stevens. Uh, he's uh, He was in The Fury. He was in uh, Rich Man, Poor Man back in the, he was an actor in the 70s and 80s. I just, I thought he was an amazing guy. Anyway, he's producing and he put out a book about producing. And, and basically what he told me was uh, producing was uh, doing what nobody else wanted to do, but needed to get done. And then you sign the paychecks so then nobody can backflip you. <laughs> One of the, the other thing that, that you mentions in your bio that I, I find I think is underappreciated is casting. And this is one of the things I've think I've, I've had discussions with people, how important casting is in terms of a product. Do When you watch a movie now that you do or a commercial or anything, do you go, huh, you know who would be better for that role would be X. Yes, but only in like a continuity aspect. Like I'm like, oh, her hair down, her hair was down before in that interview, and then she put it up, and or and then it was up and then down. So I see, you know, that kind of stuff. But honestly, my creativity comes in because I learn, I like to learn how things work, like business, the industry, uh, the union, uh, all of it, and then. I like to make it work for me. I like to learn what's the loopholes. I like to learn the rules. I like to learn all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I also, I'm, I know a lot of casting directors on the big scale and they are very creative and they just have a vision of like nothing else. But I do work with the clients and I do uh, like for commercials and, and things like that. And I, I know what people would want to see, but as far as, a big film and all of that, that is definitely not my caliber. I'm not good at it. <laughs> uh, I, 
I guess I've just been with professionals that are just really good. And that's the thing. I know what I'm not good at and what I like. I don't want to compete with people. Like if this is what you want to do, that's great. I'm not focusing on that because I'm making my own way. Uh, You keep your circle. If you're the smartest person in your circle, you got to get a new circle, right? So So you're dealing with creative people. So they're, they're fantastic. talk about dealing with creative people and how, and what are some of the challenges? Because I've dealt with creative people and even in my limited s- setting, there are challenges that are different <laughs> than dealing with the populace uh, at large. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like you think vegan Christian hippies are bad. Like, <laughs> it, it's insane. Well, uh, we do, by the way. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. I'm trying to, it's, and that's where communication comes in. There are a lot of times I want to go, what the fuck? (laughs) I do in my mind. Uh, But then I remember, keep your eyes straight and a smile on your face because they're watching you. They're looking at you because you're talking. So the stuff that I've seen and dealt with, uh, I've had artists, uh, when we were down in Mexico, they puked on the ceiling, like up. How do you puke up? Oh my gosh. Um, well, that I've, takes a talent. Yeah. I've, I've been called to <laughs> actors' houses because they've had diarrhea due to these new diet things they were trying out for a company. And they just had crazy, like, the mattress is destroyed. Like, don't know what to do. <laughs> Tried to just have a girl over, and that happens. Like, <laughs> people call me for everything because I'm a problem fixer. And then I'm like, I'll, th- I'll help you get this together. And then it's like, Get your shit together, literally. Like, if I'm if I'm helping all these people and I'm the most responsible person in the room, Jesus is fucking coming back because like, you know what happened. Now I got here, you know. <laughs> wow, I think we found the soundbite for this one. <laughs> I like it. More religion, right? <laughs> no, and that's exactly what uh, he was alluding to. So that's uh, and 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 that's what I'm saying too. It you, uh, it's easy to go screw it i'm done you you guys handle it but you handle it and that's uh that takes a special special talent uh creativity whatever you want to call it um calling you tenacity. know to, tenacity <laughs> yeah. there you go yeah and i just love problems and seeing if i can handle it well, there you go. Uh, i really do i i love hanging out with all kinds of people i love talking to everybody um i love on set and even behind the scene or like posts or anything i like to get to know everybody as much as i can because we're going to be working together and i need to trust you on some sort of capacity and plus it's important i want to know who these people are um i think it's cool and so when we're on set i'm almost again like the mom going oh he worked on this this and this and i know you like that you know uh, isn't that cool and it's the camaraderie i like to have a nice set i don't want drama and i i avoided it at all costs and if i could keep it positive my crew is the same way uh our number one rule is don't be an asshole <laughs> you think it was easy and it's simple <laughs> is one thing that you you go this is what i need to establish in order for this to go smoothly is there some is there like or you know a mental checklist like if to start with this will this will make things go smoother down the road there's no plan. I'm making this shit up as I go. <laughs> done it. So I'm just going and I'm taking advantage of everything. Um, and it's just things eventually stick. So just think of how much shit I, I tried and failed. And that's okay too. I learned a lot. And when you learn, then you get better. You get faster. And so these aren't problems anymore. I have 900 ways how to solve it already. And that's what makes me a commodity. You know, life is problem solution. And if you figure that early, 
you've got something going on. So I think you've, you've got it figured yeah, out. Yeah, it's almost like the whenever you have a problem, especially it's complex, if you can break it down into smaller problems and solve the little problems, then mm-hmm. you can... The old you how can, to eat an elephant thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never regret a time. My dad said that to me when I gave birth. I'm like, really? <laughs> one hamburger at a time that's what life's all about but, and patience it's a superpower that not a lot of people possess uh, but you learn all of the stuff <laughs> absolutely hey stacy um what is on the docket for the next big project for stacy well there's a couple of things that we're working on already currently one thing that i could mention is a documentary we're filming with uh, Grammy-nominated artist, uh, the future of blues, he's been called, uh, Clarence Beatty. He's played with everyone from B.B. King to Eric Clapton, Open for the Supremes, Temptations, Four Tops. For the last 30, 35 years, he's been touring and, and, and playing in the best venues with the biggest names in blues, uh, but he was also a heroin addict. And so last year, his son... Uh, died of an overdose and he decided to get clean and him and I are friends and we've gone through this journey over the last year I guess now and he's been clean and he's coming back in in bigger and better fashion than ever Uh, and so to be able to tell his story and to kind of launch this whole new part of his career on a much larger level because now there's bigger players involved um, and also because we kind of share that same similar story where I lost my husband from an overdose and I was an addict and he was an addict and lost his son. Uh, you connect with people a lot more and they, and you have an opportunity to help people because you know what they've gone through. You've been on that side before. I've seen both sides of the coin now. I buried my husband from the same thing that I was trying to help avoid. And all the people pointing fingers at you saying, oh, rock bottom. Well, you know, I've been at rock bottom. And when I got to the top, all the people at the top have at least dipped their toe there, too. (laughs) I think that's a great I think that's a great attitude. Uh, um, I'm going to say that it is uh, it's achievable because I'm watching you do it, but I'm not going to say it's easy. So (laughs) so a lot of people have because it's like, oh, this got hard. I'm going to sit down. You know, it's okay to take a break. I, I just that's what's motivated me i guess probably because when you're fighting for your life and you're just trying to survive at one point after you've had you know everything um it's just survival and i'm in that mode but it's hustle mode too and you just focus it and it's cool man it's really cool how everything has worked out i'm just i'm thrilled that i'm the person that i am because i didn't want to get that big ego i don't give it's great i went to oxford i did but at the end of the day no one gives a shit if you're an asshole you know nobody's gonna like you nobody's you're not gonna make a difference nobody's gonna hear your words and plant seeds that will you know potentially save their life or or whatever those are the things that are most important to me i just like to put myself in a place where i know that people might hear me or I might actually do something that's good and just be a better person. So other people can have a good day. You never know what they're going, what's going on with them at home. I mean, I don't know. It's just, I like just something that we like to talk about sometimes. Uh, uh, what do you think about, um, Nicholas cage? So, um, there was one of my very, Good friend. Oh, shoot, she's got a story too. I oh, love good, this. Good, good, good. We got this. a good start on this. <laughs> well, I got to watch what I could say. Um, but he was going to work with him recently. 
it was like the budget i think was like two million dollars nick needed like 1.2 of it or something it was like insane but it didn't end up coming you know true but a lot of people like his his films. I think you know the National Treasure stuff's real cool. Like I'm a Eastern Star. My dad's Freemasons. <laughs> like we're five generations. That stuff's cool. I love history. Um, I uh, I didn't have to produce with them yet, so right now it's cool. But when I have to, um, I'll be sure to let you know. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's a that's great to uh, to you do have a connection there. So that's very cool. Stacy, uh, we're the clock on the wall says we're getting time to wrap it up. Um, so uh, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on talking to us. This has been awesome. Thank um, you so much for having me. I really do appreciate it. You guys are fun. <laughs> oh, you've been a blast, and uh, maybe down the road we could talk again sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Stacy, I really appreciate it. You have a great, great evening tonight. You too. Bye. Thank Robert. you, Stacy. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late.